Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. This week, the Bookshelf Cinema is screening The Lobster, Song of Lahore, Eddie the Eagle, Peggy Guggenheim, Art Addict, I Saw the Light, Knight of Cups, and more. And at the E-Bar on April 14th, experience the final Shiva Boom with DJ Echo Deck. On April 15th, go dancing at Fierce. And on April 16th, Guelph Poetry Slam welcomes Spencer Butt. The Bookshelf is an independently owned cultural hub located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph, Ontario. More information about the bookshelf's hours, listings, blogs, directions, accessibility, and to order books from their online store from anywhere in the world, please visit the newly designed bookshelf.ca. On Thursday, April 14th, shadowy men on a shadowy planet and the Sadies are playing the district in Guelph together at the same place, pretty much at the same time. The Sadies and shadowy men on a shadowy planet. Two of the greatest bands of all time. Same place, same time. That's amazing news. District is located above Van Gogh's ear at 10 Wyndham Street and the doors for the show open at 8 p.m., This is a rare and great show. Let's all go to it. Everyone, from wherever you're listening, just come to Guelph. Shadowy men on a shadowy planet and the Sadies at the same time? Come on! Hello and welcome to episode 248 of the Creative Control Show. I'm I'm your host, Vish. As always, always the host of my own show, somehow. No one has kicked me off my own show. On this episode, Ray Robertson joins me for a long and extensive chat about his new book, Lives of the Poets with Guitars, 13 Outsiders Who Changed Modern Music. Ray Robertson is a noted author and novelist based in Toronto. 
He's originally from Chatham, Ontario, and he's written 10 acclaimed books, including this new collection that I just mentioned, Lies of the Poets with Guitars, which is out now via Biblioasis. Ray and I caught up in his living room shortly after the book uh, originally came out in Canada on March 15th. It's out now in the United States uh, this week as you're listening to it, uh, to the show, rather. Uh, April 12th it was scheduled to come out in the States. And it's a great book. It chronicles the lives of Gene Clark of the Birds, Ronnie Lane of the Small Faces, the Ramones, Sister Rosetta Tharp, Towns Van Zant, Little Richard, Alan Wilson of Canned Heat, Willie P. Bennett, Graham Parsons, Hound Dog Taylor, Paul Siebel, Willis Allen Ramsey, and John Hartford. And they're all profiled in this book with really moving personal essays by Ray. He's a good man, and uh, we'd met once before, so this was... This was only the second time we'd met, and it was a it was a really good conversation about music and obscurity, and fans and bands, and how they each grapple with uh, the the artist's obscurity. I thought it was really interesting. He's a good man. Pick up his book; it's great. Lies of the Poets with Guitars: Thirteen Outsiders Who Change Modern Music. Hear it for yourself right now. This is myself and Ray Robertson. Perpetually hung over for four days after a book tour? Well, just because every night there's some event that night, right? People uh-huh. want to go out to do it, so it's like every day starts over. So, Is there a wild and seedy underbelly? <laughs> just seedy, to not wild. Liter- literature? <laughs> like, you know, we're used to hearing these stories of musicians and oh, debauchery. Oh, no, not, this, is, this is fourth rate, but it's always... It's like, well, you know, the Toronto one is a big one because it's, you know, it's people, it's a big, big deal. And it was, Tuesday was great. But Wednesday and Thursday were southwestern Ontario where I kind of know some people. So people want to go to afterward and have some drinks and stuff. Yeah. And that kind of thing. So, And then I so saw it was Tuesday, Toronto, Wednesday, Windsor, and Thursday was Chatham. And then f- 
Friday was an event just outside of Chatham. So, uh, yeah, it's just good to be home. And, and you know. so you have little pockets of friends? and Yeah, well, yeah, people I knew from the, people literally I don't see until I have a book come out that I knew from way back. Right. But we're, not, we're in different worlds. But they're, they come out and they buy a book and they're like, hey, let's go. So, yeah, it's good. And, and Windsor's kind of like a second second home down there because that's where Bibli Oasis is. Yeah, your publisher, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and so kind of, it has probably got more readers in Windsor than I do in Chatham because Chatham's not a real big reading place. So, yeah, it was good. You know, it's just... <laughs> It's the fate of the writer from Southwestern Ontario. It's it's it's, it's equivalent to my publishing. We're talking about this. It's kind of the equivalent of, you know, your Dora Welty or Flannery O'Connor. They wrote about the South in the South, but they were read in New York. They weren't read in the South, right? Yeah, sure, you right. Know? It's right. Just, just the way it is. You know? That kind of that weird objective, like it's not an exoticization necessarily, yeah, but, but maybe, the element of that, yeah. Maybe there's yeah. just like how could it be literature if it's about where we're from? Right. You know? Exactly. It's yeah. Not New York or Toronto or or Newfoundland with the romance. It's it's, it's Chatham, you know, with factories and farm, which is my work to a great degree. You know, yeah. this book isn't, but, but yeah. So okay. Anyway, glad to be home. Now, where, where you've been in Toronto for? Where are you from originally? Chatham. You're from Chatham, Southwest Ontario. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. when you say there's not a lot of readers there, <laughs> it's not a slight. You're just no. like that's your personal experience. Yeah, it's my personal experience. I mean, it's just the way it is, and it's, and the people that are there though that are readers are very very supportive though. It's very much a you know circle the wagons kind of deal. But it's just not, you know, it's a it's a town. It's it's a working class town, and a lot of farmers, and and uh, but it's a great material, and the people that are there are very supportive. Yeah, so I grew up in Chatham, went to high school there, and then went to U of T, and you know, way back, and um, and that's when I moved to Toronto. I guess it would have been eighty five, and then uh, my wife and I went to graduate school. I met her in ninety, and we went to graduate school in Texas for three years. And came back in to Toronto in '97. That's the year my first book came out, Home Movies, 19 years ago. And and this book that we're talking about today, in part, is my tenth book. So yeah, so Toronto for the last 30 years, I guess. Why Texas? Uh, they gave me money. <laughs> I was tired of working for a living, so right. it seemed like a way to avoid reality. Scholarship. Like, yeah, like a, like well, down the states too, you can get. Um, they have this thing called freshman composition. Every American university it was initiated by Harvard back in the early 20th century where every student, no matter if you study the hardest hard sciences or whatever, you got to take two semesters of like how to write an essay, clear clear logical thinking, etc. So the way they do is they get graduate students to teach it. But what they do is you give you a little stipend to live on, they waive your tuition and that kind of deal. Right. Um, plus the fact that when I was, uh, when I was, uh, looking around, one of the writers who was teaching there was, uh, was a, a friend or was a fan of one of my favorite writers, Thomas McGoyne, probably my favorite writer. So it seemed like a good fit. And also it was, um, it was a beautiful little part of Texas. It was in the Texas Hill Country. So it's right between Austin and San Antonio, a little town called San Marcos. Right. So it wasn't like a Dallas or a Houston. It wasn't like a big city kind of deal. And, and Austin was funky. And my wife went to UT San Antonio for painting. And, and so... Uh, it, it's a very um, bilingual, or how do you say, a bilingual town, or whatever. It's very, I mean, it's 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 half, it's like half Spanish. I mean, the Bud commercials are in English and Spanish, so it was very yeah. exotic and really funky place. And, and and Austin, of course, had lots of good stuff, music bookstores and record stores, and so it was a great experience. Yeah, so we came back in '97. My my first book was accepted a few days before the beginning of my last year of grad school. So we, we kind of like. This is pre-internet, so we would do everything through fax and all that, and then came back here in May of '97, not knowing really what we we're gonna do. And so you were there about seven years. And states four. Four years. Like four, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah, oh, four. you met your wife in '90. You said. Yeah, I met my yeah. wife in '90. Yeah, yeah. Okay. At a Halloween party. Yeah. So. Uh, and have friends commented on it? And any when you came back? Yeah. Did they notice any discernible change in you? 
Um, because I hear uh, when you when you talk about your American experience, I, I'll forgive me if this sounds weird. Mm. I hear less of a Southern Ontario accent. Really? I hear a little Texas. Really? I hear a little twang. Well, a little twang. Um, no, I grew up now. Chatham is an hour from Detroit, right? Right. So, like, my wife grew up in northern Ontario, like north, like four hours north of Thunder Bay. Like, she's from the north, like bears in your garbage kind of north, right? Wow. Geraldton, Atticoke, and where I grew up was as far south as you can go. So my experience, as people know from, from reading my novels, is, is not the quintessential Canadian novel experience, which ironically is true of most of Canadians. 80% of the Americans, Canadians live within 100 miles of the American border, but you don't see that in a lot of Canadian literature. Anyway. Right. I, American television, American, American uh, radio, um, a lot of my early formative influences were like listening to CKLW out of Detroit, you know, the Big uh -huh. 800, like all that stuff, you know, CKLW and and, uh, and American TV, whereas, you know, my wife's watching CBC, you know, watching the Beachcombers was a big deal for her. <laughs> right, sure. Yeah. So so I always had that American, and I was, always, and my primary literary influences were, were mostly American, like uh, uh, Carson McCullers and McGuane, Kerouac, Barry Hanna. Where I think a lot of Canadian writers, it's more um, more of a European thing. Plus, I didn't study English at university, so I never. Uh, I studied philosophy, so even I, in Texas, you, that was no, your... no. In Texas, I did creative writing. Okay, yeah, right, yeah. Right, but right, at sorry. U of T, I studied philosophy, and that's the reason that I went because I didn't know any other writers, and I was started. I kind of got the bug. I kind of got the, the the religion right after I met my wife. I'd never written anything. I'd written you know some bad poetry, and you know. Uh, but uh, it was a con the confluence of meeting her, this practicing artist, she's a painter, uh, finding the right books. It was boom, 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 discovering those old vintage contemporaries. I discovered, you know, these writers, McGuane and Hannah, and, and, um, and feeling as if when I started writing, like, you know, fumblingly writing, like, this is what I should be doing. You know, it's got storytelling. Who doesn't like stories? Mm -hmm. There was a way for philosophy to be in it, like in the way that the Russian novelists were, who I'd been reading. And, of course... Uh, I found out that books could be funny and they could be serious. And that was not my experience with a lot of the books that I had been, you know, kind of force-fed. Like, literature can be fun and, and and funny. And, oh, my God, I thought it was supposed to be this serious. You know, it's like a vitamin, you know, it should be good for you kind of deal. So I took to, like, a Dr. Water, and uh, but I didn't know any other writers. And I didn't, and I was old. I mean, I felt old. I was, what, you know, 20, 24, 20. She's working upstairs. You know, oh, is okay. that, yeah, that was your wife? Uh, yeah, she's yeah. probably throwing a canvas across the room. Not, uh, not a happy artist right now? No, no, she is. <laughs> she's just, she just was away, uh. What's like your a, wife's name? Mara, Mara Corcolo. Mara yeah, Corcolo, yeah. okay. So yeah, so I started writing this. And I was like, this is what I should be doing, but I didn't have anyone to talk to it because I didn't know any writers or anything. So I would, you know, this is pre-internet, so I'd go down to the Robarts Library at U of T and, and go through the microfiche and you know, look at these American writing programs. And they all had these scholarships or whatever kind of deal. And so uh, so it seemed like, uh, you know, and she was, she she graduated from OCA and, and had, a, had, had a dealer uh, for her work, but she felt really closed in and felt very boxed in like she had a certain style and you know and she's trying to support herself and she's like you know i'd love to run away too this would be great so okay so just, you just hit the road we just hit the, we just applied to a bunch of schools most of them didn't give me money and this one did and it was in a great place so we literally packed up our whatever it was chevy vega whatever it was the bunch of stuff and moved to texas you know yeah and it was exciting too it was that age you know it was pre 9 11 you know it wasn't quite as crazy down there as it is now and and um philosophically yeah, politically, yeah. I yeah. mean, the nicest people, but scary people, you know, many of them. I mean, some of them were, of course, I mean, we were spoiled. We were living near Austin, you know. Which yeah, I, Austin is a progressive yeah, town. So, yeah, yeah. And, and and San Marcos isn't really, but it's still a wonderful little place. But it's funny, even even the people who you would d disagree with violently would still 
you know, come pick you up if your car broke down or, you, you know, that kind of thing. Friendly, yeah. As long as you were white, you know. <laughs> right. But still, you know. You had that going for you. Yeah, you had that going for you, right. Being a, being a white male worked out down there. Good for, for you. Sure. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't have a lot to do with it. You know, my parents had sex. That was about it. But, um, but you... no, it was, it was a great experience. And, and like I said, I literally wrote the book, most of the book there, and, and then and then went to the, 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 the library there and opened up Writer's Market, because I still didn't know any writers in Canada. And I went to the Writer's Market and said, oh, this place sounds good, this place, and started the process of sending it out and getting rejected. And then thankfully, you know, I went from being an old student to a young writer one day in August of 1996, when the letter came in the mail from Jan Geddes at that time, who owned Comorant Books, and said, you know, I love your novel, and... Uh, I want to publish it. So, it, you know, so I, I didn't know what we we're going to do when we came back. You know, I didn't have any job skills or anything. Or... Did, did you have some, or do you, or did you have, it sounds like you did have some ambivalence about your relationship to Canadian literature and, 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 and your work as an author here. Is that subsided in any way? Oh, yeah, for sure. I feel, I feel thoroughly like a Canadian writer. I just don't feel that sometimes the official Canadian publishing industry is... Um, I think it's less than honest, or I don't think it's less than honest. I think people generally believe the the bullshit they believe, but I feel it's it's it, Canadian Wait, literature well, goes a lot deeper than than the official sanctioned, you know, Giller approved version of of literature. You know, right? I think it's a lot grittier and a lot a lot more interesting. There's a lot of great writers that uh, in in this country, um, and and I feel myself thoroughly a, a Canadian writer. Yeah, absolutely. all my books are you know. Canadian, but I just feel that there's a sort of whitewashed, sanctified version, sort of politically correct version of, of, of literature that uh, I, th I think is, um, you know, it's second rate and, you know, it is what it is. And Well, there's an, like every industry, particularly in the arts, there's a star system. Yeah. And yeah. and so you have some cynicism about that. Well, it's, it, it's, and I'm not. I'm old enough now. My God, you know, it's my tenth book. I'm old now. I don't get angry about it anymore. But yeah, I mean, the big publishers in our country aren't owned by Canadians. They're with their branch plants of, of big right. foreign-owned companies. And the way that corporations work is you create a brand, right? You right. create a brand. So right. it's like, I don't know if the books, most people don't know books are good. So it's, oh, well, there's a new book by so-and-so. I better go buy it. And I saw, I saw her on this program. I saw him on that program. I saw him on the cover of the, oh, they must be a good writer then, you know, um, which is fine. That's the way the industry works, which is why I've been so fortunate the last few, several years to work with Biblioasis, who I feel, I don't, this, of course, I would say this, if I, even if I didn't believe it, I would be willingly disingenuous but it is true i think they're the best publisher in the country they're they're owned by by a canadian by the name of dan wells working out of windsor literally built it out of his house had his house and now he has like seven full-time employees they put out 25 books a year if you care about that kind of thing they had three books on the giller long list two books on the short list last year they won the governor general's award for poetry if you believe in that kind of stuff um <laughs> Gee, no, I, they're no. getting recognized by the same system that you're still somewhat cynical well, well, of. as as they're cynical of and as everybody's cynical of. hey listen don't get me wrong if i get, if you get nominated for these awards and i've been nominated for a couple of them it's great you know i love the kinsley amos line you know when he said well what about literary awards and he said um he said well it's hopefully nepotistic and subjective Unless you get nominated. In that case, it's a wonderful objective evaluation of art then, you know. So, yeah, it's great. It's great when writers get recognized. I'm just saying that um, his vision suits my vision. And it's just, I'm just so fortunate that we sort of are 
paths crossed uh, a few years ago in the sense that he lets me write what I want to write. He likes my sentences. I've never had a publisher who understood even what I was saying when I said that. You know, yeah. Do you like my sentences? No, but your story is an engrossing tale. You know, you know everybody's got interesting stories. <laughs> There's a million. You know, today's Toronto Sun's going to have a million fascinating, crazy stories. You know, right. whacked out stories. But can you t can you can you can you write a sentence? Can you write a paragraph? Is, is your work full of full of wonderful, graceful transitions and humor and darkness and you know, you, you find a writer and she's able to combine the serious with the comic. I mean, that's not easy. That's years of craft, right? Yeah. This guy likes to talk about craft. And, you, know, you know, that's not, you know, that's not going to get you uh, on somebody's radio program or, you know, a, a profile. It's got to be a subject matter. And I get that. But I've never been strategic about, oh, this would be a great book, you know, for subject matter. I mean, I've had a few that kind of have touched on subject matter. You know, like I wrote a book of nonfiction called Why Not 15 Reasons to Live, which is done probably my most successful book such as it is because uh, it deals with my depression I had and blah 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 and so people bought a lot a lot of people bought the book because the subject matter that sounds great my niece went through depression I'll buy your book for you and publishers love that whatever but yeah you know but but for like this book um, lives of the post guitars I mean there's no this is truly to me a collaboration there's no other publisher in Canada who would have published this book number one it's it's this it's this form that is foreign here you know an 8,000 word essay that's not scholarly at all that is my voice, my novel's yeah, voice. Yeah, totally. And yet, it's about a bunch of musicians that most people, unless they're hip, know about. So there's two strikes against it, right? It's well-written. It's what people don't know about. So. Yeah. But he's like, yeah, great idea. Let's do it. You know, I know the tradition you're talking about. Nick Tosh, uh, uh, um, Nick Kent, uh, all the Nicks. Uh, you know, this, <laughs> this, 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 this tradition of music, I guess Nick Hornsby to a degree, but not, not really serious. Right. You know, serious but fun, vibrant, uh, you know, music journalism. Uh, not even journalism. I think of these as stories. Anyway, I don't think of them as essays. I think well, of them as there's a, stories, you know. It's interesting in, in what you're saying about the, the book industry because, and I'll just be frank with you, I hear a mix of incredulity at how it functions. I hear a mix, a little bit of sour grapes, yeah, maybe. Yeah, sure, of course. Absolutely. I hear a little, like, obviously cynicism. Yep. And I've been, in in your book, In Lives of the Poets with the Guitars, I've been wrestling with the notion of obscurity. And, yeah, and how, that's a subtext but, of the book, you're right. Right, and and there's, the, the just so people understand this, the, the, these are profiles of people, some of whom are well-known. Yeah, the Ramones, Little Richard. The Ramones and Little Richard, Possibly Graham Parsons, I yeah. think, would be in that realm. Yeah. Uh, but then you have Gene Clark, you have Ronnie Lane, and all and Sister Rosetta Tharp. You have and Towns Van Zant. The list goes on. Willie P. Bennett, like people that um, hardcore music people would know. Some of them transcended their little communities. Yeah. Most of them didn't. Right. Um, and and I was been thinking about obscurity and what it does to the fanatic. And right. what it does for the artist, right? Because uh, when you're saddled with obscurity as an artist, I think that you either grow to you you become resigned to it and understand and appreciate yeah. that you have a small following. Yeah, that's exactly. But then, right. as a fanatic, as a fan, as an admirer, I think it also does something weird psychologically to you. Absolutely. You become a champion. It's true. And this is what I like. The passion of your writing in this book is that of. It's a little indignant. <laughs> it's just like why don't more people know about Willie P. Bennett? Right, yeah, but then yeah. there's also this re there's this recognition that yeah. some of these people are self saboteurs. Yeah, some of these people yeah. did this to themselves, or, or, or expect too much. And I think you're you're absolutely in the market too. If you're drawing a relationship between, I think I wrote these essays too, and I couldn't help but think of 
of the career of the you know the mid list writer to a degree. They are great teachers. That some of them are in the sense that I was I was just overwhelmed writing this essay because I knew a lot about the Ramones and and you know love their music, but how how bitter they were about their lack of success. And I thought, man, these guys were loved. I don't mean afterward now when they're played in hockey rinks, but I mean. Like even at the time, like the respect of their peers, and how can they couldn't be happy? And I thought, oh yeah, that's a lesson on how just to shut up, acknowledge that this world is what it is, be appreciative of the readers that you have, and try to write good books. Well, I mean, in the Ramones' case, and I will, I want to go through okay, almost okay, all of these guys, but that. in the Ramones' case, that's an excellent example of a band that I don't think we're necessarily aware of their power, because every time anyone championed the Ramones, they were like, look at this. Right. We got recognized for what we did. It wasn't there was there seemingly wasn't a self confidence to just be like, Oh, you know, nowadays if you if oh, someone yeah. if someone touts you, you're like, Great, yeah, cool, but I'm just I'm cool, you know, yeah. like I can yeah. but the Ramones I know that like if you did you read Marky Ramones? Of course, yeah, book? yeah. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was I love I really liked it Me actually. Too, yeah. I mean, there's some stuff I don't necessarily buy. Or I don't need to know about Marky, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But there is this like he's posing with Bono and he's posing yeah. with like yeah. all these people are championing them. And that was really important to them on some level, and yet they were making such a niche music. Yeah, like, and to, to transcend an audience is one thing, and they did. They I mean, did. They, eventually, once they, most of them were dead, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's an interesting relationship with their own stature. Yeah, and I think in in a few of these cases, like people are frustrated. The musicians yeah. you profile are either yeah. blissfully unaware they're just doing <laughs> Luckily, their thing, yeah. and and. 30 people show up their show yeah. maybe and yeah. people like you are like why can't more yeah. people know about this yeah. it's amazing yeah. and yeah. I go through it all the time sure. when you're championing a niche culture or a niche yeah. artist you become obsessive about their obscurity yeah. more, probably you, more than them sometimes. yeah sometimes yeah. more yeah. than them so that's very that's an interesting that's aspect a good point I hadn't thought of that I'd only thought of it from the musician's point of view but yeah yeah and I don't know where I'm going with it other than that's a thing I've noticed and it seems to as you say follow the thread of the 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 writer is isn't interesting too though you know um getting older because believe me a lot of this indignation's burned off i just try to live my life and, and <laughs> sure and write your book that happens I'm too old to get angry anymore you know i just like i'm i'm very fortunate and appreciative of of my place such as it is and such but 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 thinking about these people there is an element too that yeah i wish more people knew about it but if they do i get kind of resentful exactly get kind of like they're cool because i mean you mentioned graham parsons more well-known i mean i wrote a book called moody food which is based on graham parsons 2002 but long before that i mean my litmus test if i was out at, this is why i didn't get laid a lot when i was young university <laughs> but would be on hey do you, do you know who graham parsons is and if the girl said oh yeah i love the graham parsons project i'd be like okay I'm not having sex with you. you know? <laughs> no, they probably wouldn't have sex with me either. But the point was, you know, like, he, it was real hinterland stuff. You know, it was, and then you know, it's 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 cool enough. And it, it somehow it's not. It doesn't feel as good. It's like I'm in the know. You know, I'm I'm super cool. I know about these things. So it's funny. You know, you kind of want your heroes to be appreciated, but you also want them to be just for you and your friends. You know, it's a weird thing. <laughs> yeah. Because I I personally am I don't uh, the only cases where I feel resentful. Of success, uh, I think, and I'll I'll just be honest with you, because I do lots of different things, and sometimes you end up uh, being an early champion of someone, right? And then maybe they succeed, like maybe they have a huge level of success, and in the cases where people don't forget their roots, right? And the fact that people like say like me or right. whoever yeah. were there for them, right? In those cases, that's great. But, you, you know, so often you end up in a case where someone is, like, transcended. Right. 
they've kind of used you up right and now they're dealing with a huge other stratosphere of stuff and they don't have time for you right whereas my the people i admire the most weirdly and the people that have impacted me the most musically i can contact and i mean that's sort of selfish like they 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 are accessible and they're human and i think that it's you know well i think even on something more than i don't know what you're getting ego or whatever i think it's i've been listening to last you know year i've been listening to a lot of uh well i say the dead but really it's jerry garcia's guitar and solo stuff and so since then i've 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 always on the grateful dead you know one of those bands kind (laughs) of but but reading up on as i know you are you're the same as me reading a lot of music books and stuff and history you really realize that something was lost garcia talks about how when people went to our concerts in the beginning it was more like a party it was us and the audience doing something together and then you know, the years go by and gray gets added to your hair. And before you know it, you're playing a hockey rink or you're playing a football stadium. And he said, uh, and he was obviously a very unhappy guy at the end. Of course, he had monetary reasons to keep going. But there was this kind of collaboration between audience and artist. Yeah. Uh, like for the early dead. And, and you can really, you can hear it in the music. There's an, it's an ex- like, we've, we've got six new songs we're going to give you guys. This is like new stuff. Yeah, and and they were like they they would give them the freedom, which was very rare. You know, Jerry could write a fifteen minute wave of noodling, and they could okay, that's Jerry's thing. If he decided to play bluegrass music with Old and the White, okay, we'll go see that. These hippies didn't know bluegrass music. We'll go. It's Jerry. Yeah, we'll go. Yeah, and people got turned on to bluegrass right. or whatever. Right? right. There's something very very nice about that. You know, thankful I'll never have to worry about that because I'm never going beyond uh, you know uh, cult status. You know, but. You look at these musicians, and there's definitely something. The Ramones were kind of like that, in a sense. They still signed the autographs and still hated each other and still made sure they put on a good show, you know? Well, we I see it in different forms. Like, I think people, like we were talking about earlier about branding, and it's interesting that you mentioned Jerry Garcia kind of breaking up from the dead and fans following him, because in in my case, or in my experience anyway, you know, if you book Lee Ronaldo from Sonic Youth to play a show or a festival, Whereas Sonic Youth, the brand, right. would fill Massey Hall. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Lee's going to play a small club. Yeah. And, and there's this weird separate... And it's the same guy. Yeah, I mean, it's not all the guys or all the people. Absolutely. People have a weird relationship with music sometimes. And I can't tell if it's really about the music. If well, it's, it's not. It's not. It's like Steve Marriott, you know. if it, when, when, he, when Humble Pie... I'm not a huge Steve Marriott fan, but... It, when Humble Pie broke up, he went to America. When turned to be Steve Marriott, formerly of Small Faces, formerly of Humble Pie, he'd play a club. Steve, if you get Humble Pie back, there, even if not the original guys, just one of the guys, yeah, we, just we, call we, it. We that. can book you, book you into theaters now. We can do that. It's because people say, "Hey, man, Humble Pie's playing. Let's go yeah. party." You know, yeah, let's go see the dead. You know, it's like, well, it's all about getting high and hanging out in front of the Pontiac Silverdome. It's really not. I'm hoping the second set they play Dire Wolf. It's not that kind of fan, <laughs> right. right? Yeah, and that's okay. I mean, that's that's hap- That's that's where corporations are happy. It's like brand identification. We're not, you know, you don't have to be a hardcore Marxist to understand that most people are being led by the nose by brands and etc. And you know, and, and again, the the anger is not really there anymore. It's just disappointment. But that's the way life is. Exist within it. I, I really don't have much patience for the "woe is me" thing, and you know, kind of. You know, oh, the major labels don't understand me. Or, you know, I published a couple of books with major publishers and like Doubleday. And, you know, they throw it against the wall. If it gets nominated for award or if you catch lightning yeah. in a bottle, great. They're your friends. If not, they don't return your phone calls. It's a business. Yeah, and it's a business. You got to understand money. that. Yeah, right? I, I do understand it. But yeah. I do think, like, as I say, reading this book, and I don't know if I'm why this happened to me. It's going to be different for everyone reading it, obviously. But it just opened up this cycle, this can of worms about the psychological relationship right. we have with music. Right. 
And where I was going earlier when I say like the only resentment I have is when people forget their roots yeah, yeah. is that I ultimately in my work want the people I like to do well. That's why I'm investing the time. I'm, right. I'm here for you today yeah, okay, yeah. because I want people to know about your book. Right. And if you're successful, I'm not going to be like, I was first. No. There is that mentality, but saying. that's not how I, I personally, I think, I hope I'm not that way. There are, There's yeah. a tendency to be like, you got to check out this Al Tuck record. Right, Al yeah. Tuck's the greatest yeah, songwriter. Yeah. I do this all the time. Yeah, yeah. Al Tuck's the greatest songwriter that I know. You should, and no one knows him. And he's totally could have belonged he belongs in your book as a figure like he just, just to pause, just once i want to keep going but it's funny because the only other person who said it to me is my publisher he's a huge fan i was like who oh tuck yeah yeah, yeah my publisher dan wells said you gotta check this guy and that's only recently he's told me that so you're the second person <laughs> so there's there's but there's this romanticization of i don't want to call it failure because none uh, of these people are failures yeah. and and but there is a romanticization of hard life yeah. and and struggle and, and the addiction plays into that too that's really romantic to many people yeah you know, i mean in when you're reading about graham or towns who are yeah. i i mean for my cohort of people those are well-known obscure musicians yeah. yeah but when you when i read your book and see how they basically kill themselves yeah. or you know and and just through... or in the case of towns killed his art too like, yes I don't exactly at all there's been a couple of reviews and oh robertson's just romanticized like, you read the book i mean he was this prolific songwriter put two out two albums in the last 18 years of his lives one of them which wasn't any good yeah and it's because he cut him like all alcoholics do you eventually isolate yourself from your emotions and everything else i mean it killed his art yep and 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 then you have this weird because I mean, these are personal relationships you develop with the artists. Oh, and we all do, right? Yeah. Like not just I mean, I hopefully this book isn't written for other writers or it's for people who have that relationship with music, that person. And you do feel as if I know some of these people better, not only than other people, because you say they're about characters and books, but sometimes better than myself because we don't go around. I don't spend as much time myself as I do reading about the Ramones or Graham Parsons, and I feel like I understand. Um, things that you're talking about that that kind of tension between self-destruction and well like the, you know the, the 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 town's essay one of the themes in it is you know how that kind of stuff can liberate you and yeah. can also doom you right and that, right you have to be a musician that could be a guy who works in a factory can understand it you know that's why yeah and then you this is why we relate to things like you mentioned that your people really related to your book about depression right yeah and i mean people want to relate to people like i can't really relate necessarily to the experience of Dee Dee Ramone turning tricks on the street. No, no. At no. the same time, I understand, or I feel like I have an understanding of that world because of him. And also what you can understand is the way that all of those guys separately wouldn't have made up the thing that became this special thing. The chemistry. Yeah. Yeah. And then you can understand too, or be fixated on the idea that they really, truly were, you know, the definition of outsider art or, or, or you know, that kind of like, they were idiot savants to a degree. I mean, Joey, uh, uh, Johnny does the downstroke because when he practices guitar, he likes to think it looks cool in the mirror. That's how it's started. Total vanity not, and yeah. total like... And, and inability. Yes. It's a, we're, trying, we're not trying to be primitive. We just were primitive, which is interesting because when they become more proficient, the music's less interesting as they try to sound primitive, right? Right. You well, know? and they also had, as you mentioned, they, you know, people were playing Johnny's guitar parts. Sure. Oh, exactly. In the studio, yeah. So that's, but that's just interesting too. And that's what I'm saying. Like the book to me isn't just for music heads in the sense that I find the story, like Sister Rosetta Tharp's story, yeah. in the sense that, you know, here she is spreading the word as Jesus would want her to do and she gets condemned by the religious 
religious community for playing for secular people. It's like, yeah. wait a minute, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and the way that, you know, she adds that, that little something, that little sexy something to her songs, is that being uh, disrespectful to the impulse? Or is that part of what a soul is too? Your body coming a part of that you know passion and yeah all that stuff you know it's about music but no but it's about it's life a, i mean the little richard chapter is so sensational oh my and, god yeah you know what this seems like a nice time to i i had mentioned to yeah. you that we should we should maybe uh for the sake of people who don't know this book lives of the poets with the guitars we should actually get into the, the each of their lives yeah, sounds like fun. however before we do that okay. for the sake of chronology yeah. can you maybe in an overview fashion Talk about why you wanted to write this book. Yeah, I mostly write novels, uh, a couple of books of nonfiction. Um, as I say in the introduction to the book, um, I remember realizing a few years ago that music is a part of my novels, like Jim Harrison, nature is to his novels. And I thought, oh, okay, that's it's a pretty big part of it. And I kind of wanted to drop the fictional veil and just say, hey, these are people I care about and you should care about them too. And if you don't care about their music, their lives are fascinating that way. And I just felt like, and also, you know what, less less uh, ethereal answer. As I've gotten older, I need to sort of alternate fiction and nonfiction. I just find that I'd, I, I like to work, and, and I don't like to be too far away from writing, um, or I get into trouble a little bit. So I found that the last several years, I write a novel, I write a book of nonfiction, a novel, and it kind of allows part of the brain to relax. I mean, it's still about good sentences and humor and intelligence, but you're not making up a world. I mean, I've got Little Richard's world. Okay, I'll try to bring the page. As opposed to, you know, like a do novel like David, which is set in the late 1900s in Settler Ontario. you got to start from scratch. It's just, it's a, you're creating a world, right? Do you so, do much journalistic writing? I used to write book reviews. Book uh, reviews, right. But, but uh, just, I found that the nonfiction, uh, I can turn it into a book now. So instead of reviewing a book about depression, depression I write a book about depression or write a, write a music review. From your own personal experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so it kind of is that element to it. Um, I mean, just to be clear, the structure of these essays is very personal. Yeah. I mean, you're you're not. They're they're journalistic accounts. Uh, they are. They include song and record reviews. Uh, you know, subjective things. Yes. That you, your oh, yeah. subjective opinions of, of their trajectories. It's not simply. And a, that's why I, in the introduction, when it pains, it has to stop some reviewers for saying, though. You know, there are only certain people. This is only this kind of music, or there's only this number of people of this kind of type, or whatever. And I was like, you know, write your own book. You know, this is me just. I'm just talking about my record collection. Now, hopefully it transcends that and becomes about, if you read the Sister Rosetta Tharp essay, it's not really, if you don't give a shit about gospel, well, you do care about the fact that this woman made her art in the face of all this great opposition and how she handled success and, and, and how she dealt with physical disability. And it's just like, you know, that's the universality. But no, I, I if I set out, I would go, okay, I need certain people from this genre, that kind of thing. It's like somebody said, well, you know, where are the people, the artists of today? I was like, well, I'm an old man. I don't know who the artists of today. <laughs> I don't know, man. I'm not going to write about Lady Gaga. Someone else is going to do that. You know what? Maybe some woman will read my book, some kid, and she'll say, you know what? Great book, but Grandpa doesn't know about these people. I'm going to write my own book. And that'd be great. I'd be thrilled with that. You know, but I'm not trying to be exhaustive or scholarly or anything. I wouldn't no, no, no. know you how to, you, you know. clearly picked subjects that you relate to and whose stories were interesting to you. And I think the universality is not in selecting X number of women or X number of colors of skin. It's like the universality is that, you know, I can identify with, with um, 
like little Richard, okay, it was being gay in a small town. I wasn't gay, but his struggles growing up in a small town that really didn't want him to do anything, like to be flamboyant, to, to, to be himself. It's like, you know, get back in line. You know, I can identify with that. Although I wasn't born poor and black and gay in Georgia in 1925, but, you know, and I, I hopefully that's where the universality comes in. You know, you, you, know, you, you don't blame, you know, you, anyway, whatever. Have yeah, let's you, talk about the musicians. Have you actually <laughs> in, endured criticism about oh, sure. the, the gender and race? Absolutely, yeah. Well, not so much the race. The only problem with the race was when, when I read the essay on Alan Wilson in the book, Canned Heat, I said, I always hate the expression, good white blues guitarist. Yeah. I say, it's kind of like, oh, he's a good, he's a good black opera singer. It's the most offensive thing you could possibly hear. You mentioned hear. that in your I do, and, yeah, and a chapter, person, yeah. the, the, the Star Review in the weekend said, I flinched when he said that. It's right. somehow, it's like, you know, it's bullshit. I mean, it's like, my idea of prejudice is when you prejudge someone, you look at their skin and say, well, he couldn't possibly be a good, good poet. Look at the color of his skin. He wouldn't say that, but you say, oh, he's a good white blues guitarist. And it's just ridiculous. Either either good or you're bad. You know? right. And there's socioeconomic reasons why there aren't a lot of good white blues guitarists. Right. But at the same time, it, you know, I mean, but it's all it's also subjective. Early 20th century, you know, if you saw an Irish guy, well, he's a good fighter. Well, you wouldn't say that now. It would be he's an African-American, right? Sure. It's just, it, you, you judge the stuff on the basis. And we're so afraid, especially in this country, of saying, I think this music is good. Oh, it's all subjective. It's all contextual. It's all, yeah, it is. But you know what? There's good shit and there's bad shit. And, right. and Alan Wilson was an amazing guitar player. And can he is this boogie rock band that has this reputation for being dunderheads, and they were to a great degree, but he was a genius. People don't know about him, and they should. And I didn't know much about Alan Wilson. Like, I kinda... He's buried, you know? He's yeah. buried. Because yeah. he's, he's that, got that classic rock tag of, of canned heat, you know, boogie rock. Because after he died, they continued for like 12 yeah, years. Yeah, and then going up the country. Like, I mean, there's yeah. this kind of, a, that's the song, right? Yeah, and and it sort song. of seems silly. The voice is, <laughs> he's singing in that high register. And that's and... his, yeah. And that's his, I just want to, because I know we're going to the music, I just want to go back to the thing. And it's, okay when people um, you know criticize the book i just don't think you should criticize the book that i didn't write you know that's not the book that i set out to write to be an encyclopedic representation you know this this is a very subjective novelist account of some passions that hopefully transcend the particular you're, artist you're treading into the territory that we have been inundated with of late in terms of the concept of political correctness right right yeah. and i get the impression that you're feeling that this is not a book that that judgment should be applied well to. You, of course you can judge it i mean if you if you can pick it up and say well you know there are only three black people and i don't want to read the book that's fine you know that's yeah. cool but i didn't but i also didn't sense that well i've got to include certain people i mean i found little richard's story fascinating i find sister Jetta tharp's story fascinating hound dog taylor another african-american i mean he to me is one of the great discoveries of my life in the last 10 years because you get older you discover less i mean i don't know how old you are but i'm, I'm older than you i'm sure and you just fall in love less as you get older you well just, you, the time is more precious for i guess one thing. i guess and, and, yeah. and i mean we are our brains are built to have formative periods i guess is that true i I, 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 that. I do think that's true i mean the things I that i was getting old and lazy no i mean when i look <laughs> at if i stop and look at this show that i make and the things that i've put the most energy and passion into there's stuff that you could say was had its heyday in the 90s and right. so when yeah, did yeah. i when did i have mine's the 70s so there right <laughs> so when did i have my most formative musical experience right, oh right, the 90s right. oh interesting and who am i talking about like who who are the people yeah. that i'm really stoked to talk to oh people that made records at that time period so I, there's and i don't think of myself as being overtly nostalgic yeah yeah, yeah. it's not uh, the people i'm talking to are either very active now still and for whatever reason 
you know, because their initial blast, which is also sometimes misconstrued as their initial and only power. Right. That that I find it like going back to the Jerry thing in, in the dead, I find our our <laughs> dismissal or you know, sometimes people make a bad record. But I generally if I'm invested in a, an artist, yep. And it could be someone I even loathe now. You know, like something from my youth where I'm like, I don't care about the new U2 record. Right, right. I shouldn't care about the new U2 record. <laughs> For more than one reason. But if it, if I, I will, and this is, you know, I'm not ashamed of it. I don't have that much shame, but I, your taste develop. You get, yeah. you get a little more discerning. And the things that, I mean, even when I was a kid, that was not a popular band. U2 was right. always kind of this foreign yeah. band that the America would try to get behind, but they didn't have resonance. Yeah. Even now, they were never like a big singles band. No. At one point, they seemed to be everywhere, but they weren't ever really. But but uh, I will, out of loyalty to something, probably still check out a new record. Yeah. And even though I find them so loathsome on some level now... Yeah. You know they're not the biggest villains in the world, but they're not very cool, and yeah. they probably never were cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, however, like that's a formative part of my being. Yeah, I think you've hit on it, and you know I quote Orwell in the S in the introduction where he says, "Wide sympathies have their penalties." You know, if you try to be cool, if I tried to be, oh, I'm going to write about an important electronica artist. Well, I don't know what that music. Yeah, you know? and that I would look foolish. I mean, I'd probably get. I probably get some some pats on the head and say Robertson did a wonderful job of being inclusive <laughs> with different shows. No, seriously, yeah. it's like you know he's really tried to, yeah. And you know what? That kind of book's not going to last. I'm hoping this book, you know, will 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 last many many years because my passion and you know hopefully my my writing will 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 allow it to to live. But you know my subject matter couldn't be less cool in some ways. There's I mean, some I, amazing turns of phrase in here that well, I, I think are just it. incidental. Like I'm just like there's a thing. Forget what it is. Something like uh, you can't make a spoon into a fork, and <laughs> if you lie down, if you lie down with dogs, you're gonna get fleas. Like they're just like little well, turns of phrase that I quite liked. Well, yeah, I mean, in the middle of like this, basic, like I'm like, there's a biography, and he's just talking about the records, and then all of a sudden you right. Yeah, because I, I didn't want it to be a Wikipedia article, right? I wanted sure. it to be a story, and I was—I only realized this when my voice is gone. So I've been on the road. Don't worry about it. You're, just, you're doing well. Okay, uh, I, I was—you know—some stuff you don't know until you start talking about it. So I was doing some, you know, talking at these gigs we've been doing this week and I was like, I kept saying story instead of essay. And I thought, yeah, I mean, that's kind of kind of what these are. They're not going to be interesting to someone so, oh, this record came out in 1972 and it was a good record. It wasn't like a Rolling Stone record review, you know? Yeah. It's a story. And hopefully, anyway, so the point was that, uh, yeah, it's not it's not representative, it's not this or that, but um, I'm hoping the, the, the art itself will allow the, it to be universal. You know? Yeah. So I think for the sake of people who have not yet read the book yeah. and as, as a way of previewing it, I'm trying to figure out if we can do very succinct. I'll try to go quick. Yeah, yeah like a couple minutes on, yeah. on everyone <laughs> in the book. Hits. Yeah, great. It's just hits. like a little sense of who yeah. they are. So let's start in order. We'll go in okay. order of the book. So Gene Clark. Gene Clark, as happens with most artists that are writers or books or whatever, someone says to you, hey, you got to read her book or something. She's just... So I was a guy who was living in Texas and I was into Grammy. He said, have you ever heard of Gene Clark? I was like, yeah, it's not guy from the birds, you know, only a couple albums, you know, Jangle Rock. She said, oh no, he had this really... And so he, you know, back in the day, he made me a cassette tape, you know, and yeah. I was like, and then I just fell in love with this guy's music, very dark, melancholy, minor key, uh, country rock, but more singer-songwriter. Um, and then, of course, the more I got to know about him, his, his career, he's a really interesting period in the sense that he was, he was, he was, he was, that period where the major labels are starting to only 
be concerned with making selling big records and he was still trying to be in that industry and how his art became less and less interesting as he tried to accommodate that now near the end of his life he sort of found his niche on a smaller label but he would have been like who john prine is today in yeah. terms of like hounding his own little but he missed that and he had some terrible terrible addiction problems and and that... hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. But I feel that albums like White Light, No Other, and the Dillard and Clark albums are, you know, I mean, they leave Neil Young in the dust. They leave. Now, they're right there. I mean, he also, I think he is, he's the true forefather of country rock. Yeah. Uh, not Graham. And I love Graham, of course. And, and, and woefully um, underappreciated. And uh, I, I wanted to begin with the book with him because I thought he was a quintessential artist for this book in the sense that great art, fascinating, sometimes tragic life, um, but the music survives. Yeah. You know? Okay, that's the, very good. Okay, that's good. That was good. You did a good. That's job. true about everybody in the book. We can all end <laughs> You do have a tendency to look at uh, a, a band that people might know, and then focus right. on a member of the band. So you're going to Ronnie now. We're going to Ronnie Lane. Right. Well, he's with the faces, the small faces. What I loved about Ronnie, uh, again, finding the music incidentally, you know, and and you know, here, here, here. Oh, okay, this guy stuff, because it's just kind of like a British country rock gypsy music he's really interested in, in i don't know if that's a politically correct term but um sort of <laughs> gypsies exist anymore but uh it's this beautiful if, if you listen to faces stuff you'll know his stuff i'm talking about like richmond and debris and things like that well he did that and went further but what the fascinating thing about ronnie's life is and again if you don't care what the music as much as it he left the faces at the height of their their fame yeah. when they're when they when they are playing hockey rinks in north america where you make the real money uh, rod stewart the lead singer and he leaves he meets this woman, and she sort of helps him come to realize that, you know, this is no way to live, way to live in hotels and airports. So he leaves. He takes his money in the faces. He buys a, a, a farm, a Shropshire farm, and a, and a mobile recording studio because he knew the mo music he wanted to make probably wasn't going to make any money. He called his band Slim Chance. Right, right, yeah, you know? right. So he said, well, I got this kind of, we were talking about with the majors. He's like, well, I know I'm not going to, so I'll, I'll rent out my mobile to the Stones and everybody. He made his money that way. And then he thought, geez, you know, I'd love to take this music to the people, places that wouldn't pass the tour analysis, you know. So, so he, you know, he'd make this passing show, he called it. He'd bring the music to people. They'd have jugglers and, and, and he'd play his music. And sometimes it was for 30 people. Sometimes it'd play people. Right. And, I, and, and of course, it's not all romantic. I mean, he, he, he got frustrated. He got frustrated. People not buying his records. Records weren't released in America, which is why they're so hard to get now. For many, many years, they're very difficult to get on CD even. And then, of course, um, the tragedy with Ronnie is he got MS. And, uh, you know, the tragic line that he says at some point, he turns to 
friend is, is, you know, I can't even drink myself to death because this disease is so debilitating. Right. And the way that he fought on and fought on and made music afterward, even when he eventually moved to America for, for health reasons, he lived in Austin, he performed in a wheelchair. You know. Did you get a chance to see him? I never did. No, never I, did. He died. You know what? He died in 97, the year we came back. And for a couple of years previous, he had lived in um, Colorado for his health, for the air. Uh, but, you know, and I, and to be honest, I didn't really know his music then. Yeah, right. You know, I didn't know. Well, we'll come to the Towns. Say, a, a friend invited me to go see Towns. I said, I'm not going to see some folk singer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what an idiot. Yeah. So, we'll come to that one. Yeah. Right? Okay. I appreciate that. And uh, the, the, that's a really compelling story and uh, an heroic one on, on some it rogues a good word yeah yeah ramones the ramones is a, is a was a great one for me because i wasn't into the ramones when you know at the age you probably were you were hip i was you know i, I grew up in a small <laughs> town pre-internet with no older brothers or sisters this stuff was hard come by but the ramones of course i knew about i moved to toronto blah 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 everyone i talked to all my friends oh yeah yeah i saw them i didn't i always i, I always felt that i was full of so much energy and 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 anger and frustration i didn't want to listen to music that sort of captured that so when i got older <laughs> i kind of felt like oh this is kind of filling a hole in my life yeah you mentioned like a cup of coffee you know and then of course the the, the songwriting genius and, and everything and then the story was so fascinating with these guys we were talking about earlier like they really on their own they wouldn't they needed every one of them in their weird freaky abilities to make this entity i mean like dd did want to be the bass city rollers it wasn't being ironic. Yeah. You know, A-O, let's go, is uh, yep. S-A-T-U-R-D-A-Y-N-I. Yep. That's I mean, a good point. Like, can you imagine that now? I mean, he talks about, it's not in my, my book, but I remember an interview I read with him. He's talking about when they were on the road once and the runaways were opening for him. And they, you know, everybody wants to hang out with Dee because he's the king of partying. He's the cool guy. And they went to his room and he's in his room. He's having a joint. He's listening to Jackson Brown. Yeah. And they're like, man, this is not, this is, you know, I don't think it's cool. It's like, what are you doing? He's like, this guy's a great songwriter, you know? Yeah, it's Didi like, cared he about didn't good care. Songwriter. He, he just, well, but good he, songwriter. Good songwriter. <laughs> and I mean, this dysfunctional group of people are so bizarre. <laughs> they are. You like, wouldn't like even nothing need Nothing to... that, this aspect uh, certainly of Johnny Ramone and his conservatism that don't make any sense in the oh, spirit of what they conservative were Conservatism is, is, is you. He's a nut. He's a yeah. right wing nut. Right wing nut. Nazi. <laughs> Nazi. Charles Manson. Propaganda collector. Yeah. yeah. Racist and the whole deal. And then you got everybody else. But the music to me, especially those first four albums, to me is is to me is as good as. I mean, my definition of classic rock and roll is not you know Emerson. Like, classic rock and roll is the Ramones in the sense that yeah, they, the, yeah, it's first, rock and roll. First four or five records yeah. are. Flawless. It's about. I mean, all that end of the century is not so great, but everything else is great. A little bit of end of the century, you're right. That's where I stopped my discussion. Yeah, yeah. There's another reason why my, my book isn't scholar. It's like basically after that, I don't talk about the records after that. I talk yeah. about end of the century because there's some good stuff on it. Phil Spector's well, story is great. Story is great. Then yeah. I just say blah blah blah, you know. And yeah. someone say, well, where's the discussion of pleasant dreams? There's a good song on side <laughs> two. Well, that's not these essays aren't that kind of thing. Yeah. But the Ramones thing to me was um, these fascinating individuals. This weird music and that music to me is, uh, I mean. Uh, you know, Blitzkrieg Bach will be listened to as long as there are people listening to music. It just transcends. Or playing hockey games or football or, or, games or whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, Joey would have loved that. That's I for sure, yeah. have a slight bone of contention about the Ramones All chapter. Right. And I have, I have, what I have is the arc. Okay. I believe this is the, the facts yep. that, that you've stated here. Danny says, yep. you mention in your book that you think this is a, bo a, a song about Joey's girlfriend, who he, then ended up... With with Johnny. With yeah. ended up with Johnny, Johnny. which is a great... That's a weird story in yes. the band as well, and it basically destroyed their yep. friendship forever. I think Danny says it's about their manager, Danny Fields. Oh, it's Danny Sugarman, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Danny Sugarman, yeah. Danny says we have to be here. Danny at such Fields, a time. isn't it? Danny Fields, I'm sorry, Danny yeah. Fields. Yes, yeah. of course, former 
discover them in the MC5. Oh, yeah, no, for sure. If I didn't put that in there, I, I meant to, yeah. <laughs> well, you say that it's because his girlfriend's name, I believe, is Danielle. Oh, I didn't mean to say it in fly that. Okay, well, no. So that, I was like, as a oh, fan, I'm no, like, no, no, oh, no. that's interesting. So Danny is a show. No, yeah. no, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no, don't yeah, apologize. Da, da, I just, yeah, Danny I'm fact-checking for you now. It was like Danny says we have a soundtrack at 2 p.m., yes. but I wish I was with you, Danielle. Yes, okay, that's right. right. Well, you that's go. what second editions are for, clearing that up. <laughs> Thank you for pointing that out on the air, by the way, <laughs> I just had a, it's just a minor thing. That's the problem with this book. You know, you read, you read a novel... And someone says, well, like, with this book, I mean, it's only been out for a week. And I'm like, if you, but people were saying to me, yeah, I read your essay. And they're all freaks of, of certain bands. It's like, I noticed on page 32, you said that song is three minutes and 50 seconds. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hope that didn't seem No, that no, I think it's just great, I though, just, that certain people there's have. There's a documentary about Danny Fields called Danny Says. I'd love to see that. Yeah, so that's why. And Danny Sugarman, of course, was at Electra Records. Of course, and, of yeah, course. Yeah, I'm yeah. Gonna, yeah. Yeah, okay. Now I'm correcting you on that. But no, I, right. I didn't mean to do that. I'm just, uh, <laughs> Danny Fields is an interesting character. He's a fascinating guy. Yeah, I mean, he so. goes back. He's, he's got great stories about what an idiot Jim Morrison was. Right, exactly. <laughs> he's the one who hooked up Nico and Jim Morrison. Oh, is that right? Can you imagine playing Matchmaker? <laughs> anyway sister rosetta tharp yeah to me she, to me she is one of the if you if i was going to have an agenda for this book it's like well people who are not well known enough without her there wouldn't be rock and roll. i mean there would have been rock and roll but there wouldn't have been rock and roll at the time uh jerry lewis auditioning for son little richard auditioning for specialty uh, this is before there was such a thing as yep. rock and roll that they helped invent it. They uh, auditioned with Sister Rosetta Tharp songs. Now these weren't these weren't deep thinkers. Jerry Lee Lewis admits I, I never was much of an intelligent man, kind of deal. <laughs> sure, right. But he said, uh, "Okay, we'll play some songs. We'll play Sister Rosetta Tharp songs." He didn't think, "Oh, this is a clever way to create a new genre." There was something in her music that was broaching, pushing us toward this new art form that she didn't call rock and roll or anything. Yeah, but sure. these guys yeah. did. And they, again, the brand name. Yeah. There's a new thing, rock and roll. Well, when, when they auditioned, and Elvis too. Now, he didn't audition with that, but he was a huge They were all huge fans of hers. Well, why? Well, they all come from the church. They all went to church. They all did gospel music. They all had the singing. But then there's this little boogie-woogie beat, this little thing, bluesy thing sped up. I mean, it's gospel music sped up, really, in many ways, rock and roll. Then you bring in the hillbilly thing. Mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. but, but to me, she's at the foundation. And uh, so that's interesting right in itself. But then you've got the story, as we touched on, of her being um, facing this opposition from her own community, Christians and her own church. And, and granted, it's a pretty conservative church, but... Uh, and her going in and playing the clubs. And, and then there's the question, too, then she tries to go toward a broader audience. And so they, they, her music becomes diluted and less interesting. Yeah. And 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 so it's ironic that here she is trying to, to make it a broader audience, but it's less appealing to people because it lacks that grit and that soulfulness. So that's interesting, too. And then, of course, that she had her own troubles. Um, she may or may not have been bisexual and had a relationship. And she certainly had, like... Abusive the, relationships, the with worst yeah. taste in men, or what do you want to yeah. call it? You know, predatory men, usually from within within the church. I don't want to armchair psychoanalyze this, but she had a weird relationship with her father too, right? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Right. and her mother. That's right. She had a weird. Her mother. Her mother never told her that she did well. I mean, she took a part of the riches and stuff, but there was always that ambivalence, like. Uh, you know, like like we've got a nice house, but I don't like where you're getting the money to make this. From, yeah, exactly. Kind of deal, right. right. Yeah. And then she suffers these physical disabilities, and you know she's up there. She got her leg amputated, and yeah. So she's up there on crutches, and also the thing is, she's a wicked lead electric guitar player, which yeah. is bizarre for that time. Not only gospel, but a woman up there yeah. cranking it away. You know. Right. You can talk about girl power. You know. <laughs> it's a remarkable chapter. Yeah. yeah and yeah. a story I didn't she's know great. at all. Yeah. She's great. 
Towns Van Zandt. Well, Towns, as like we talked about at the beginning of the essay, I lived in Texas, and a friend said to me, hey, man, I know you're in all this, like, talking about Graham Parsons and all this. Now, you should go see Towns. And he said, folk singer. Uh. And I'm not going to go see that. <laughs> you weren't into folk music at the time. Well, I thought folk is, you know, like, you know, Pete Seeger or that kind of stuff. Or at best, it would be like Cat Stevens or... You know, Harry Chapin or singer-songwriter. Things stuff. that didn't have an edge, necessarily. Yeah, you know, I mean, pre- Seeger did, but pretty, I mean... Yeah, well, I respect yeah, Seeger, yeah, but I don't yeah. want to listen to, you know, protest songs or anything, right? And so what happened was, ironically, so we... we uh, uh, Towns died January 1st, 1997. We were still living in Texas. We didn't go back until May 97 when my first book came out. And so... All the everybody had towns in the air. Towns was like Jesus down there. Absolutely. So, so yeah. it was like he was in the cover of this and this. And so my wife came home with a two for a two for CD. She had. I guess she she was she's more adventurous. She listens to new music. There's this great <laughs> radio station down there, and they would play. You know, they play. You know, Willie Nelson. Then they'd play Tom Petty. Then they'd play Nirvana. Then they'd play Webb Pierce. And I guess she heard some towns or something. Anyway, she came home with this CD, which was a two for that had. Uh, uh, late great towns Vinzan and high low and in between and i took it and was like wow where have i been missing this and then we moved back to canada and i started slowly assembling the stuff and and he just to me is that wonderful the best of what american music can do that weird america it's like country it's folk it's certainly there's a blues element to it but it's also very literate it's a guy who obviously had read robert frost and had read dylan thomas and it's like it's this wonderful uh towns is one of those artists that we used to talk about this when, when I was younger with writer friends. It's like, you don't want to be the guy who has, you, who you go into a secondhand bookstore and they have a whole section of your books. Yeah. You know, somebody wins an award or somebody talks about a book and everybody goes and buys it and everyone gets rid of it. You, you don't go into too many secondhand record stores and find Towns records. Right. People either don't care, don't like it, which is fair too. Because people aren't going to like my work or don't know about it. Or if they like it, this is mine. Get your own. I will turn you on this. I'm going to lend you this, but you got to give it back kind of thing, right? It's like you don't see that many used Toyotas. People exactly, like their Toyotas. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. There's a reason, right? Yeah. The actions speak louder than words. Yeah. So, so Towns is one of those guys. And I and I always sort of, I can always, it's, it's a, it's a you used to talk about handshake books, you know. People would say, uh, you know, do you, do you like uh, Richard Yates? Do you know who Richard Yates is a writer? Yes, you do. Okay, you're one of us kind of deal. Talents is one of those ones you, you either turn somebody on. Do, do you like it? Do you know about it? Okay. If you don't, it's like you don't want to hang people who don't drink. You know, you don't want to hang sure. people who don't like Towns. I don't really want you to hang out with my host. Right. <laughs> okay. He's one of those guys. Okay, know? cool. And uh, I mean, his story And is... then the addiction part of it is just very, very, very good lesson, to, or good essay to read, good story to hear about whether for me or someone else about how you can't romanticize. I mean, you know, red wine's an important part of my life, but at the same time, uh, there's a great Churchill lines where he asked what his alcohol is. He said, you know, alcohol, I've taken more from alcohol than alcohol's taken from me. Right. And there comes a point where it takes sound town's soul away, et cetera. And I know I didn't write any cautionary tale, but you can't read that essay and think that I'm romanticizing substance There's a abuse. couple of such essays where obviously people are, I don't know what it is about the artistic impulse to also push uh, your own being as yeah. far as it can go when you're supposedly pushing the envelope, so to speak, or whatever, or trying to assert, I don't know, it's a you know, weird, weird aspect And, and you know, you have, you know, dentists and factory workers who have alcoholism problems. Absolutely, but, yeah. But, but you're right, there is this, but there does come a point when, when, when the booze starts thinking for you or the drugstore, and you're not, it's not furthering anything. You're not yeah. going, you're not, you're not even having more fun, yeah, exactly. You know, you're not even having fun. You're, yeah. you're 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 trying not to feel physically bad, right? You know, <laughs> right. which is not cool. Yeah. Little Richard. Little Richard was um, when I 
my parents have been the most supportive, wonderful people in the world, but neither of my parents went to high school. They were not, there were no books around our house or anything like that. Um, you know, but subsequently, you know, they, they were always supportive of me, but as typically as, you know, uh, working class people are of their kids to go get an education. They weren't too thrilled when I did philosophy. Then when I told them, I made a clear decision, I'm going to be a novelist. They weren't too thrilled. Yeah, but, right. but what we did have around our house was was lots of 50s records and stuff. My dad was eight tracks, if you know, you remember those. And, yep. And I would just sit and listen to the eight tracks. They'd be like, you know, he didn't have great taste. We didn't have like, you know, cool editions. They'd be these like, you know, mixed, you know, best of the 50s CD, uh, eight tracks. And and the stuff would come on. It was all nice and catchy. Then Little Richard would come on and it would kind of scare me, you know. The lyrics were so incomprehensible. Right. You know, wah, blah, 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 bam, boom, two, three, bone, Rudy, you know. It's like, it was like nursery rhymes almost. And the music was furious. Yeah. And, and I talk about the essay how, you know, everybody's Little Richard. They've seen him on 90120 or whatever he's, he's you know he's, he's a nice old man you put the headphones on you put that stuff up it's crazy music it's well, just crazy he was willing to be a bit of a cartoon or certainly now sure. he's happy to he seems happy to oh sure he's nice and yeah at the time it's dangerous music but yeah what was interesting about him was and i talk about and again I, it's a very salacious it's the most probably the most salacious essay oh yeah i mean well in terms of his personal life too yeah. and and also you know tutti frutti was originally called tutti frutti uh good booty right it was about anal intercourse right right and he would perform it at frat parties he would get dressed up uh very very kind of like femme and he played these frat parties for white ki- rich white kids, and they loved it. And he would sing these ribald songs. And actually, there's a good example going back to Sister Rosetta Tharp. So he does his, his edition. Oh, his, that's his right. Specialty. That's a great and story. And they're like, yeah, these are great, but you know, a million people can write these songs yeah. or sing these songs. Like, you're, I need something different. So they go to have lunch, and they have a couple of drinks, they have some lunch, and he's a show off, as all artists are. And so he goes over to the piano and he starts, you know, playing that song. And they said, that's something. Wow, what is that? Well, we can't have those lyrics. They brought this woman in. <laughs> Who was their lyric writer, and she turned it into Tutti Fruity, right? Um, and instead of Good Booty, it's a song of makes no sense. But uh, I mean, it still seems to be about what it's supposed to be about. <laughs> well, that's what all great art is, right? You yeah. don't spell it. Yeah, so, I thought. What, I thought where you're where you're going is that Sister Rosetta Tharp actually let Little Richard sing well, that's, that, on stage as a connections. Kid. Yeah. yeah, that was yeah. a big moment in his life. He worked at the wherever the the, the, the Macon Civic Center, or whatever. Yeah, and she heard him singing out front. No band, just singing. He just was singing yeah. the impressor, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and she said and he went up there and I think he said he got like seventy five dollars, which would be like you know his father's wages for two weeks or something. He's like, this is the life. Yeah, me. right, right. She gave him some. And dough. there are these connections. It's like nearly all of these people too. They all, a lot of them saw Elvis Presley yeah. on the Ed Sullivan Show. Or the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan, yeah. or, or saw the hard, excuse me, the Hard Day's Night, the movie. Right. I mean, different artists or whatever, it changed their lives that way. Or the, or these other people, they were all in the church, the church music. It yeah, was right. connections that I didn't plan out. If it seems that way, I'm not that clever. It no, just no, seems, it just they all have these connections. So, yeah, yeah, no, and I'm sure you discovered. So little, little Richard, and plus little Richard struggled with his homosexuality, and it truly was. I mean, this guy never said, you know, even when he was. Uh, playing rock and roll and indulging in homosexual sex he still thought that he was wrong that it was dirty that he was being sinful he was he sinful. had an inner conflict yeah yeah and then yeah. he would stop playing for 10 years he would marry a woman poor woman yeah and, and you know little richard i'm gonna be i'm gonna cure myself of my and so it's this but what comes out of it is the tension is his music right you need yeah. the irritation to make the pool the, the pearl so maybe if he doesn't have this this goes back to what is it about art <clears throat> maybe if he doesn't have this 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 inner pain he doesn't make doesn't 
yeah kind of those shows, you don't know. You know yeah you just don't know yeah. it's i think at some yeah. point you also make a funny joke about which came first the chicken or what was the other <laughs> chicken or the alcoholic the chicken know? or the alcoholic <laughs> yeah. well not quite where i where i was thinking there but, but yeah. still it's that tension like you know what what causes what right? yeah exactly you know he's yeah. a great performer he's a great performer too because i think he feels on stage he can be himself and be alive absolutely yeah you know and if you don't even feel comfortable in your skin well maybe you don't get up on stage and make a fool of yourself you and know? i mean at the as it stands in our trajectory, interestingly, I think Little Richard's the only one who's still alive at this point. Uh, we're going to keep, we're yeah, keep going, end, and we're yeah, going to keep going here. But more, yeah. yeah, yeah. Alan Wilson. Alan Wilson, we talked about earlier. From Canned Heat. You say Canned Heat. You can go on YouTube and see Cam Heat. He's this little myopic, uh, pasty, pudgy, white guy from the suburbs of Massachusetts. Possibly who, socially inept? Uh, not possibly. Yeah. Possi possibly, if he wasn't a virgin, he probably had sex a couple times unsuccessfully. Um, Wait, what does that have to do with being socially inept? <laughs> well, he wasn't comfortable socially. He, wasn't comfortable else, with women. he didn't bathe. He didn't bathe. I'm, by the way, I want to be clear. I, I wanted to. I don't want to ruin this book for people. We're like <laughs> spilling a lot of beans here, and I there's yeah. just stories here that I I want to get to. Yeah, yeah. I hope you're okay with this. I'm of course, like, yeah, yeah, I yeah, feel yeah. like I'm doing. No, I'm there's been great, no spoiler alert this here. This is going to be the best conversation <laughs> I'm going to have. Of course, this book because it's a like-minded individual who read the book. But so so yeah. So he's this guy in this band, and they kind of get popular for a little bit. Um, and uh, blues he, aficionado, blue like, aficionado. Yeah. I mean, these are the guys that uh, such aficionados that they would go and collect 78s. And if they found a 78 of one they had, they would break it so theirs would be more rare. You know, they were these guys, they yeah. were just that freaks. And so they become a blues rock band and they have their kind of moment in the spun sun. They play at Woodstock and stuff. But Alan writes the stuff um, on album after album that becomes less and less traditional blues. He uses the blues, mm -hmm. but it becomes really like Poor Moon, which is a song I talk a lot about in there. It's, it's, it's a song about how the, the, we're polluting the, the moon you know the a space shuttle's going up and we're already junk up this is in 69 yeah it's like ecology as they called it back then in a blues format he seems a little prescient <laughs> doesn't he oh yeah, yeah. absolutely too yeah. and i mean he, he was on about the california redwoods uh, the gatefold of uh, future blues you open it up and there's a picture of the band standing around redwoods and alan looking up information this is how you know right away to this box office and help us save the redwoods and people thought he was like a conspiratorial Oh, yeah, nut. like he's a freak, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and, and this wasn't just some hip thing. I mean, he was very depressed. He talked, yes, This yes. was a guy who was a kid, you know. He'd come running in the house. His mom said, what's wrong? He said, I hear the trees are crying, you know. You know the, the wind's going yeah, the trees. The, I mean, epitome it, of uh, existential angst. Oh, my God. Yeah. And he talked about the blues, you know. And he dies at 27. Uh, there's some speculation he killed himself. I put some arguments forth. Yes. Not not my own. Other people have done the research in that corners. But I don't think he killed himself. But I don't think he was concerned with being alive very much. And he tried to kill himself a couple of times. And it's it's a tragedy because his the last album was great. I mean, this guy, too, is the guy who helped Sunhouse recover his career. Yeah, that's career. right. Yeah. This is, a, this is a particularly fascinating essay for yeah. me because I think if you only know the popular aspects of canned right, heat right you're not going to delve right. into alan wilson yeah and this is the guy that you know when they made an album that was released after the last album that he made with canned heat was an album with john lee hooker called um, that's right hooker and heat and he made that album as i put out in the book alan was in the mental hospital he would check himself out on friday at five and check himself back in at noon on sunday so he could go on that album and that album now it's hooker's album as it should be but the stuff that he and alan do together on what was side two of the first album is is haunty stuff and hooker says you know, he was a genius he was hooker he was, was very impressed yeah, yeah i mean they they were two peas in a pod but even he said i didn't know the kid yeah uh, you couldn't know him. he just sit in the corner and kind of yeah. look at his shoes right. you know everybody else is partying and you know so anyway to, alan's very, very close to my heart very compelling chapter yeah 
Willie P. Bennett, speaking of geniuses, yeah, Willie P. Bennett. Willie P. Bennett. Do you know Willie's work? I do a little bit. I mean, I got to see him and share stages with him really? when he was with Fred. And, oh, wow. And uh, my, one of my dear friends is Scott Merritt. Uh, Don't know Scott. Scott would have worked on some of those Fred records. And, oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Well, Willie P. Bennett is, is a Canadian singer-songwriter that I talk about when I came to Toronto from my small town. I wanted to see a folk musician, you know? Yeah. I knew about... I just talk about folk, but I mean like Neil Young. I was like, wow. So I looked up in Now Magazine. It said, this folk singer at the Free Times Cafe at Spadina College. I went because I, I knew that intersection. That's yeah. the reason I went. Yep. And I went and I was blown away by this guy. And at that point, he didn't have a record label. He, he made a self-financed cassette and he, he had a little bag over his shoulder <laughs> and he sold them. And this comes back to that question. So he made three albums in the 70s. That's like little... the early version of Bandcamp. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and we talk about the, the fanaticism of these artists. Towns Van Zandt's first record came out in Poppy. That label was created by Kevin Eggers to bring out Towns' music. Willie P. Bennett's records, Woodshed Records. Uh, David Essick created Woodshed Records to bring out Willie's record. These people thought, these guys have to be heard. The, the industry's not paying attention to them. Hound Dog Taylor, we'll talk about later, yeah, yeah. created by Bruce Egler, That's Alligator right. Records. That's right. So anyway, so Willie P. Bennett was this, uh, I guess you'd call him a, a folk singer, but it was very country-infused. His records are full of, of mandolins and stuff. Um, <clears throat> and I would see him around town. He's the only person in the book I knew personally. And I always just, I was going to, I don't know what I was going to do with my life, but he just was this beacon of integrity. And what we talked about, living anonymity. I mean, if he got 40 people out and he sold some merchandise, but he still, you know, he built docks. He did, he did, uh, he did drywall. He did all these things. Yeah. And uh, you can say, oh, it's terrible. He should have. But also, uh, it was very inspirational. And I think that, um, again, you don't have to be an artist to be inspired by somebody who meets obstacles in their life and perseveres and, you know, lives a good life, you yeah. know, as best he could. And, and, uh, and good humor, like a very funny guy. He was a funny, self deprecating. Yeah. And when I came back to Canada in 97, I wanted to go see Willie play. And there's, oh, Willie's a flying squirrel. What's that? Oh, he's with Fred Eaglesmith. And that's why I got introduced to Fred. I didn't know Fred's yeah, music. Yeah, sure. So I went out, and that was your classic lineup where they had Fred, when, when, when Willie was playing this uh, mandolin with a tremolo band, it just like crazy. And, yep. and Washboard Hank playing himself, you know, kind of deal. And and Ralph on bass. And they were a powerful. And Fred was touring a great album, Listen to Lies and Gasoline. And I saw them so much. And, and Willie was... But I was like, well, why isn't Willie playing his gigs? And that's one of the things the essay's about. He got tired of it, and he, he, he kind of like removed himself from the scene and became a, a side man. Yeah. And, uh, and I always thought, well, geez, what about Willie's? What about Willie? And so that's one of the things that essay's about. You know, how do you survive? You got to pay bills. How do you, how do, you do it? And he yeah, and I, I mean, it's not a, it, what, you know, you mentioned some of the labor work he would have done. Oh, yeah. But I mean, to even be a, Sideman in a well-paying gig with Fred Eaglesmith has got to be fulfilling. Fulfilling. That's one of the things he said. Like he knew, you know, he they had gigs, they had nice gigs. You know, Fred, Fred, you know, you know who Fred and he, yeah, he, they they work hard, but you know they're well respected. They play nice places. Yeah, yeah. They travel think, on a nice bus. Yeah. They, I mean, it's hard work. I don't, I don't know. I mean, and he always shone a light on Willie. Like oh, I, he obviously loved Willie and respected yeah. him greatly. Yeah. And there, to me, to this day, and I, and I still think. Fred's a great artist. Is it? I always just look on stage, and I always look. That's where that's where Williams yeah. did, you yeah. know, because he brought and the harmonica work he yeah. brought to Fred's work, and yeah. So anyway, that's a that's there's some hard chapters. Uh, I mean, when you look at it, there's not that many. Uh, interestingly, there's not that many. I mean, is Will, yeah, Willie's the only Canadian, right? He's the only Canadian, which you know, will probably get me in trouble with someone else too. <laughs> so, I but, think it's uh, fine. I no, I wasn't. I yeah. just pointed that out. Next that's time a... I read with a tragically hip, I'll do that. Okay. 
Graham Parsons. Well, Graham Parsons, I wasn't going to write about because I wrote a novel called Moody Food, and I thought I had said everything I just said. That's not. A, it's not about Graham. It's about a guy named Thomas Graham. And it's based on him, right? Based on him, and but I said it in Yorkville in the '60s, so it becomes somebody else, and blah blah blah. But I thought that. I had captured everything I wanted to say about Graham. So I wasn't going to write about Graham. And of course, the longest essay in the book is about Graham. Because it <laughs> turns out I had more to say. But he's a good example, too, of how things change over time. You're talking about relationship with you, too, in the sense that my appreciation of his art has not diminished. It's only increased. But I, writing that essay, I did realize that I probably wouldn't want to hang out with Graham. He was a he was a very charismatic guy. But at the same time, he, he wasn't a good friend. He was a know? prick. He was a prick. He, I mean, based on this, yeah, yeah, okay. Machiavellian. Like, what can you do for me in my yeah. career? And if you can't buy, yeah, the way he joined and quit bands and drop people, but at the same time, people kept coming back and and entitled and, rich kid on some level. Oh as yeah, well. yeah, not on yeah a lot of levels. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. that benefit is art too, you know, like because he got a a, a, a twice yearly. Um, what do you call it? And uh, when you he got a he got a not stipend. It but was a, a fifty thousand dollar trust trust fund. fund. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So biannual though. So, biannual. So actually a hundred grand a year yeah. he got for and nothing. And that's a nineteen seventy. Right, right. Right. Okay. Yeah. So he's able to do things like okay, the Flying Burrito Brothers. We're right there. You're probably even in an, in an era of crazy names. Their two greatest songs, the, their sweetest, most beautiful ballad. Hot burrito number one. Right. I mean, he can take these chances. Their music was this amalgam of of R and B and country, and he let and Sneaky Pete does this crazy stuff on steel. That gives him that that safety net that probably made him an entitled you know sob to live with. But at the same time, but the flip side of that is he was right. At the, uh, the flip side is that he wasn't actually motivated by money. Exactly. He already had it. Yeah. Exactly. He already had it. Yeah. Exactly. So if you he actually can... separate that, you can kind of see his rebelliousness almost as quintessential rock and roll exactly exactly yeah. and see this is one of the things that um I, I call these stories as opposed to essays i mean an essay sounds like you have an agenda and you want to prove things uh w- one of the reasons that i left philosophy and went to literature was that it, you could you can include all of that that ambivalence you, all those contradictions all that gray matter that makes life interesting so fiction a novel can do that so graham yeah graham's not good or bad or or a nice guy or a bad guy. I mean, he was all those things. Yeah, yeah. You know, which I think a, which I think a good book or a movie has to do. It has to be, you know, the bad guy's still a good guy to his mother, you know. Right. You put that in right, there. Exactly. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh hound dog taylor hound dog taylor was a relatively enthusiastic relatively recent enthusiasm. He was a uh, uh uh he played almost exclusively slide, wicked slide on a Sears Roebuck uh, guitar. With a with a rhythm guitar player and a drummer, and he was always drunk, and he always plays taverns until he got kind of hipped up by Bruce Egler, and they started this label, and the college crowd kind of took took him in, and I've never heard anything rawer or more visceral or more. Yet he uh, he had a, a good ear, and his music is a party. His music, you put that music on, people start moving around. Like I say in the book, his music is best heard in a kitchen full of drunken people. Yeah. And, and 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 he said that always. He said, you know, my music is about a party, but it's also very sad music. But but not sad in a gentle, melancholic way. In the sense, like life is rough, mm. it's rough. And not, and the blues is such a, it's so easy to fall into cliches with the blues, you know. Mm-hmm. And I've always had. I grew up in Detroit, so I grew up listening to a well, lot, not listening to, but hearing a lot of Chicago blues. It got really tired to me. And hearing this stuff, it just sounds, it just explodes out of your speakers, especially as live album. Beware of the dog. The I mean, the way you, d- you describe it, it sounds like uh, punk rock or garage rock yeah. or something. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's, there's nothing rawer than this, unless yeah. you're trying to use like sound. 
you know, doing a Sonic Youth thing with with noise. Sure. But there is noise. I mean, this squall of his slide guitar is just, it's filthy. It's just absolutely filthy. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And in a good way. Yeah. You know? And yeah, he's a, great. And, and also his struggle, I mean, he was a full-blown, I mean, he drank in the morning. I mean, he, he, he when yeah, I talked to Bruce Eggler, two he's shots like, in his two coffee. Two shots of coffee, or he yeah. would be shaking kind of yeah. deal. And, uh, Obviously, not a good thing for him as a person, uh, but he lived to be on stage and have people. His big before every show, he'd say, "Yes, we're going to have a good time now." It's like That's right. he lived to to be a party, you know. Yeah. Ironically, what killed him wasn't booze, but cigarettes, that lung cancer. So yeah, lesson to you. But there. He, but you mentioned <laughs> that he couldn't have a cigarette without a drink. So might as well. Have been yeah, booze, might as well. Right? Exactly. It might have been booze, right? Now this is interesting. Your the next chapter, the next essay in the book combines uh, two gentlemen right. who I don't think they're careers there's no dovetailing nope, of them nope. as people why did you come this is my editor asked that and, and they are the other two who are alive by the way I'm right worried. exactly uh paul siebel and willis allen ramsey i included them together because paul C. Will and I, willis allen ramsey made one of the most brilliant albums that i know of country rock folk whatever and that's it he made one album in 1972 and he didn't die young he's still alive uh, Paul Siebel made two albums that are the first one is is equally as good and transcendent. The second one is wonderful, but not as great. Uh, and then he never made another album. And it wasn't because of drugs or alcohol or they decided to be pull a Rambo and move away. They just never wrote any more great songs that they felt comfortable with. And so the essay was yes, I want people to know about their music and you know, hey buddy, you know, check her music out or check his book. Uh, but also I wanted to you know you, you don't choose to, to write novels or music or something you kind of have to unless you don't want to become a professional you know which is the yeah. worst kind of music you know oh here comes his new book you know it's like oh stop writing books please you know we've heard this before <laughs> and these guys had a quality control level that was was off the charts well it also speaks to the the well and when it yeah, runs dry yeah and the mystery of it right yeah and not fighting it i mean there are people who fight they have careers yeah and they may not have anything left to say but they keep going right yeah, just and, habitually, yeah. and and because that's their job. And I can understand that. And uh, now Willis Allen Ramsey, he was lucky, or maybe cursed in a way that <laughs> the captain in Daniel took one of his songs yeah, and made right. a hit out of it. So Must he never had to worry about money. Yeah, which maybe is a good thing. But then again, the Sistine Chapel got was a house painting job, that's right? You mentioned he, that he, in the book too. He, he, yeah. So he made something kind of special out of it. But if yeah. he was like, if he wasn't, you know, forced to it economically. Now, Paul Siebel, he made his money. He, a, few, a few people covered his songs, but they weren't like big people. They were like early Bonnie Raitt and Linda Ron. So he didn't make a lot of bread that way, but he he he, he was able to tour because there was still a folk music touring circuit back then. But come the 80s, it slows down. And he becomes he, he becomes a baker. Uh, he works for the Parks and Recreation. Yeah. And um, and uh, he looks back on his life and 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 uh and, and wonders, you know, did I really do, did I really do that? And he's he's very unsure of his musical worth. He's like, I'm, I I appreciate everybody name dropping me in cool magazines and stuff, but you know, I I just made a couple albums that nobody bought. And like, no, no, these are amazing. So I think those two needed to go together to explore that idea that you know, living after you know after the thrill is gone, so to speak. How do you keep living? It's got to be a come down, not in terms of money, but just in terms of like not feeling as alive as you once did, right? Well, as the book unfolds, it, for me anyway, it becomes more and more educational as I, you know, I didn't know Hound Dog Taylor's story. Right. I didn't know Paul Siebel or Willis Allen Ramsey's right. story. So that's going to make me 
well, good. track down some records. And... If you don't know, then that's that's a good litmus test because you pretty much know, you know <laughs> well, a lot that I don't that's know. that's not so. necessarily no, true. true. This is, uh, I think it's helpful. So the final yep. uh, essay is about John uh, Hartford. And I ended it that way on purpose. I was sure I want to start with Gene, like we said, because he sort of was the quintessential Lives of the Poets artist. But I wanted to end with Hartford because Hartford did not destroy himself. Hartford led a good life. Now, he died tragically young of, uh, of cancer. Um, I say young as I'm approaching 50. He's like 62 or 63 right. or something. Yeah. Uh, but um, he did things right, you know. Um, he made a bunch of money when he was making these sort of country country pop albums, I guess you'd call them. But he wrote Gentle on My Mind, which Glenn Campbell sold yeah. a zillion copies. So when he did, he, he was, you know, the late, the majors wanted to leave, him to leave anyway, but he left the majors. He signed with a label called Flying Fish, this small label. He said, I'm just going to make my records my way. He bought a house in Nashville on the Cumberland River and made these eccentrically bluegrass albums. Um, the, the album Aeroplane was a life changer for me because it's bluegrass music with, fused with the Beatles. You know, it's got this great songwriting. Yeah. And the lyrics are about, like, urban planning and... and um, uh, you know, falling in love with first cousins and, uh, uh, you know, the death of the hippie culture. How do we move? Like all of these kind of, it, it just was an amalgamation of like all these different strains, beat poetry, the Beatles, hardcore bluegrass. And to me, he was such an individual and such, such a visionary that way and the strength of his integrity. And again, I ended it that way because he led a quote unquote good life. I mean, he smoked a lot of pot, but I mean. <laughs> you viewed it as a happy ending? Yeah. And you don't, uh. I, and the first line of the essay, I don't have the book in front of me, it's like, you know, you don't have to stick a needle in your eye. You yeah, don't have to do that. That's and right. a couple of the reviews say, oh, Robertson romanticizes this. You know, I put that essay last on purpose to say, you know what, the goal is to have a good life. It's a great poem by Irving Leighton. He, I think it's called advice to a young poet or something like that. Maybe I'm confusing with Rilke, but he says, no, no, no. The goal is to drive them to drink. You yeah, know, let's right. drive them crazy. You know, let's let's live a good life kind of deal. And right. Hartford to me was just a just a guy who uh, who made his music and and played on those people's records. And then later, when he, this is interesting too, when his sort of muse dries up, I don't know if you'd agree that it did, but it, it did. He turned to more traditional music. So he'd make an album of. Uh, Here's some here's some uh, some fiddle tunes by uh, Ed Harley that people don't know about. So I'll do an album of that. Not my cup of tea in particular. Sure. I think you have got to be a picker, I think, to really be or a, a scholar of it. And I'm not. <laughs> but 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 that's what he would do. And he like he, even when he was he had the, the, I end this, the essay talking about when he had the cancer and he could barely speak and he certainly couldn't play anymore. Yeah. He'd have people over to his house for you know they have picking parties. Where everybody sits around, has some food and some drinks, and, and everybody plays. So Gillian Welsh, Dave Rawlings played, and so and so played, and and he couldn't play. So you know, bring my new CD, put my new CD on, and they he play his CD and they talk about it. Right. To me, that's you know we're all gonna it all ends in tragedy. There's always a messy end. To everybody's no, life. but I can understand why after you keep fighting till the end to have fun and connect with people. There are so many self destructive stories that are a part of this book. Right. Um, and and they're mixed with genius, right? Yeah. So that's the tragedy, right? Uh, of of what could have been or or what should have been, right. maybe. And you know, you're shining a light on all these people because, I, I mean, I, I I don't know what your ambitions were. Hopefully, I would think in some small way this impacts these people's hope, legacies. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. for the people who pick up this yeah. book, maybe you go download or buy some. Go buy some yeah, records yeah, yeah, if, if yeah. possible. And and I think that I can see why. Hartford story is like the bomb at the end of yeah, and yeah, this. of course that implies you. Have but to it's still sad. <laughs> it's sad. It's sad because we all die, right? Yeah, I mean that's yeah. The, that's 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 you know, I, you know, every one of my novels. I mean, I, they're all different, but I think ultimately it's like 
you know, we're going to die. What do we do in the meantime? And how do you yeah. live a meaningful life? Because there is no ultimate. I mean, the last essay in 15 Reasons to Live, you know, there's an essay on friendship and on art and intoxication and, and work. Well, the last essay is called Death because it's there. And how can we, how can we make, how can we uh, use death to live a better life? You know, yeah. well, we talk about brevity then, appreciate it kind of deal. So the Hartford essay to me was, yes, it's a positive essay, but it's not a syrupy like, you too could, it's like, you know, you're still going to get cancer and die tragically young. <laughs> we all are, sure. you know, sure. if you're lucky and as opposed to, you know, falling apart in a nursing home. But at the same time, here's a guy that right to the end, because he fought this disease for many years, yeah. non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, so it wasn't like he died, you know, he had about eight years or so. And he still played, you watch, um, most people's, contact with John Hartford is either the cover of Gentle My Mind or he was in Down from the Mountain. Yep, that's right. He saw the MC in that, right? Yep. Not his finest moment because he's a he's not he's not a well man, but you see him up there and he's still contributing. He's still participating. He still this, wants to This be part was of the uh, like Oh Brother Where Art That right. concert. And, and that was the big yeah, the yeah. big spike in bluegrass sales because of that movie. And he's in that he's not a well man, but he's still there and he's still uh he's still entering into that thing that is transcends the individual you know the music the tradition the community yeah like in a lack of a better word he's trying to have fun and yeah. having fun's not easy life's hard you know there's work and kids and 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 you look around you and the world's such a bad place and stuff but all of these musicians i think um brought a little bit more light into the world and you know i need that in my life and so i guess these people did it for me so i was like you know here's some and hopefully these other people will you know, if you if your favorite people aren't in the book, you know, God bless them. You know, write your own book or talk about talk <laughs> yeah, about your message. No, I I like I like the the mix of. Uh, it's very narrow, but at the same time, I hope that. No, it's... No, I think it's actually. I mean, it's the you uh, someone could make the arguments we t discussed earlier right. about the scope of it, but I appreciate that it's from a personal place and that it does reveal uh, a kind of eclectic taste in, well, within you. Okay. I think so. I think I think it's there. I mean, God, really, the outlier on some level is probably ramones but but at the yeah. same time they but make sense well they make sense with little richard like i mean there's yeah yeah ancestor was that type there's like there's uh, everyone's got an edge edginess to them in here yeah that's I, true and i think that's the thing we go way back i don't know how long we've been talking but way way back <laughs> uh about books and you know forget about uh you know everything else i just like books that have an edge and it could be the edge of uh uh um Penelope Fitzgerald's satire, or it could be the edge of, you know, Jack Kerouac. But the point is, they both have this aliveness, this intensity. And I just don't, I'm, I'm, I, I didn't study English at university, so I was never taught the fine art of attending to, tending to appreciate boring books, you know. I needed to, <laughs> I needed to find a book that paid off, not at the end, but every sentence had to be alive, etc. And all these musicians, to me, feel very, very alive. And when I put them on, my mood changes either you know, excited with the Ramones or, or melancholic with Sister Rosetta or hopeful with, you know, and, and that's to me the, the definition of art, you know, it makes you feel more alive. Yeah, that's great. That's well put. Now, Ray, I appreciate this conversation about this oh, book. And I, I, but I, before we go, what are you working on now? I'm working on a novel, of course, because now I finished the book of nonfiction. <laughs> so tentatively, it's fall 2017. It's called 1979. It's about a 13-year-old paper boy living in southwestern Ontario in Chatham. In 1979, and what was appealing to me about that was the time period, of course, because 79 is like just before Reagan, Thatcher, Mulroney. Yeah, this kid is 13, so he's still a kid, but he's going to be an adult. Where I grew up, 1979 was the last year before most of the factories closed. My dad lost his job in 1980, so it was this. It was this a really interesting period that way. Huh. And because my guy, my narrator, is a is a paper boy, he also sees the whole community like like other people wouldn't. You not know them. 
No, no, but, but it's true. But, yeah. But he sees he not only sees the rich doctor, but he sees the 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 new the new immigrant who's opened the Chinese food place in their life, and he sees the poor the poor black kids over here, and he sees the poor white trash over here, and he see he sees all of them. So yeah. in a way, the book is kind of like my Spoon River anthology book in the sense that it's all the community speaking out. Now he's too young to appreciate that, so I interpose these kind of like zany newspaper articles that aren't really newspaper articles. They're kind of like prose poems about all the people in the town. So it's but definitely going to be a commercial. It sounds disaster, like you're but... you're are you close to a draft? Yeah, I'm close to a draft. Yeah, oh, okay. I don't have any kids and I got no hobbies, so this is what I do. So <laughs> and I have dogs. My dog recently died, but we'll, we're yeah. we're, we're going to do a bunch of stuff in the states in May for this book. We're going to do a little tour. We're actually in, in homage to Ronnie. We're calling it the Slim Chance Spring Sixteen Tour because we're not sure anyone's going to show up. So we're calling it Spring Chance. So when we return in May, we're gonna we're gonna get another rescue dog. But in the meantime, yeah, I like to walk my dog and. And you know, listen to music and drink wine and 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 write books and you know and uh, it's it's this is this is not bullshit. It's really nice to actually talk to somebody who actually cares about good books and music and has actually read the book. This has been a ball, man. It's been <laughs> Thank a ball. You. Thank you, Ray. I appreciate it. It's been fun for me too. Is there an online hub for you? Uh, I'm not really an online guy, but I do have a website because the publisher made me have one for events and stuff <laughs> like that. And there is a Facebook page, but I'm not on it. It's just for them to think. But RayRobertson.com. And there is a Facebook. Um, if you want to contact me, though, don't do it through Facebook because I'm not. Con- send me an email via the website. Sure. But visit the Facebook things. It's got all the articles and stuff. I've got a guy who does that for me and whatever. But uh, right. But and also that's got all the um, the the tour info and stuff. So you know, if I'm, I'm able, I just started. The book came out last week. And yeah. So it's like yeah. come out and have a chat and talk so, some music. You know. So Lies of the Poets with Guitars by Ray Robertson. RayRobertson.com and also biblioasis.com that's the publisher Ray this was a real pleasure thank you for being on the show thanks thanks again to Ray Robertson and the uh, people at uh, Biblioasis Books for uh, setting up this conversation Uh, Ray that was that was fun I already told you it was fun you know it was fun I hope you had fun Ray still listening back to this if you did he's a good man check out this book it's great you can learn more about it as I mentioned there at the uh, Biblioasis website And uh, it's available in the United States of America, I believe, starting this week. So if you're listening in the States, pick it up. Pick it up. If you want to listen to Creative Control of Vishkana, it's available on iTunes, audioboom.com, vishkana.com. You can go to patreon.com and look up the show to make a flexible monthly donation and keep the podcast going. Uh, We are also on Facebook and Twitter. Look us up at Vish Creative on Twitter. I'm at Vishkana, by the way, if you want to follow me. And then delete me a week later because you're realize why am i following this man also the show is available on cfru 93.3 fm in guelph wednesdays at noon eastern standard time and worldwide at cfru.ca you can listen anywhere in the world uh, not just in guelph and the surrounding area and that's all i have to say i think for now that's it that's it i'm done there's more shows coming i have some stuff that i have planned did some live tapings over the past weekend that went well waiting on the tape still but we'll get it soon and then you can hear that that's all i have to say all right thanks for listening and supporting the show tell more people to listen to it if you can tell them to download the episode so that the show seems like a a thing people care about and we'll go from there i know you care about it don't feel bad you and i care we care we just need more people to care we always do that's what everyone wants really right okay i've gone on too far and too long my name is vish i'll talk to you soon goodbye for now
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.